podcast is about to begin, sir. Welcome to another week of Watch If You Dare. And this week we have a special guest on named James Hales. Go ahead and say hello, James. How are you doing, boys? So this week we are going to be diving into the movie Phantasm by Don Coscarelli. So, as usual, I've got my fellow spook boy Derek on. Boy! (laughs) Boy! There's going to be a lot of that, by the way, in this episode. Just be aware. So, anyway, cool. So, y'all know us. Um, So, James, go ahead and tell everyone a little bit of your background and why you like horror and just everything else. Well, thank you guys for having me on board for this one. No problem. Essentially, I love horror through and through. This has been a long-lasting part of my life, going back to ever since I was roughly five years old, four or five years old, definitely rough about around five. Yeah. I remember the initial foray into the horror realm came in the form of Nightmare on Elm Street. And <laughs> I remember it was one time we were at my grandmother's house in rural South Carolina. My cousin and I went to the video store. He was older than I was, also a horror fan, just broke me into it through Nightmare on Elm Street. And, you know, nothing says time to get exposed to something that is going to terrify you than watching Johnny Depp getting sucked into a bed and being liquefied. It's a hell of a way to break in. Yeah. (laughs) From there, it was just... There was less of a fear than more of an excitement or a a wanting to have more exposure to this stuff and I just went in from it from there sneaking around watching stuff when my parents were asleep or yep. uh, in some cases just didn't care <laughs> grew up in New Orleans so there's a big 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 you know supernatural overtone in the area um, of course with the cliche voodoo aspects but at the same time it's just a very gothic city and, and you get that ambiance when you're there from there throughout the 80s just watching movies and shows especially um monsters monsters was the big show that i thoroughly enjoyed uh i remember that i stuck around and watched you know things like freddy's nightmares um tales from the dark side tales from the crypt when it ultimately came on when we had hbo but Monsters was one of my my favorite shows. I'm actually been looking them up on looking up certain episodes on YouTube now. Yeah, and watching those get back on track with it and remembering it. But yeah, just novels, a lot of a lot of Stephen King, a lot of Dean Koontz, uh, as well as horror comics across the board, and just everything that I can basically run into. Awesome. It's good to have another New Orleans guy on here too. So let's talk a little bit about horror related things that we have seen read played etc so james since you were the guest why don't you go ahead uh as of recent everything i've been mostly watching especially has been through shutter yeah so uh shutter's been my go-to Sometimes it'll be for, you know, the little things that'll pop up. Like, for example, one about a, uh, there's a movie called Boar. I saw that one, like, on the the main, like, headline menu as well. I did as well. It sounds pretty great so far. Continue. (laughs) And it's just, you know, about a killer boar in Australia 
kind of like Razorback. Oh, man. I loved Razorback. I love Razorback. Uh, except a lot, I guess, hokier. <laughs> yeah. And it has uh, John Jarrett in it, which makes everything better. <laughs> so it, it was a worthwhile watch for that period. But um, yeah, generally just doing that. And as I said before, um, looking up a lot of old stuff on YouTube because um, I'm starting to notice that people have been posting a lot of old shows on YouTube, uh, most particularly Monsters, okay. as I stated before. Just little things that I'll look up and uh, try to find more information on. Currently, one thing I've been trying to get more information on, trying to find more things to watch on, has been uh, the German Krimi films, which are the essentially the German version of Gladio. And I got to go see Brightburn as far as the most recent theatrical release. And it was actually very good. Okay. And that's one that I've missed out on just because I haven't had a whole lot of time to like get to a movie theater. The idea of an evil Superman. That's always been a great thing that I've looked forward to seeing. And mostly because, honestly, out of all comic book characters, Superman is my least favorite. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's such a boy <laughs> scout. And to actually see a version of him where he's like just going ape shit and getting all Jason Voorhees is actually pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like the premise of Brightburn too because it's it's interesting that it came out in this kind of post MCU world we're now in with uh, popular movies out there and I liked the whole premise of Brightburn even if it's not necessarily original from like a comic book concept because there's so many like what if Superman was evil sort of stories but it was great to see it as a horror movie and a horror superhero movie is such a like I, I feel like there's not really much out there for that kind of subgenre, so it was nice to see that get some attention. So, and just waiting on Midsummer. Yeah. Right now. That that is the next great thing that I'm waiting on thus far is Midsummer. The review, like at the time of this recording right now, the reviews for it just dropped, and they are pretty positive from what I've been seeing. Heather and I are actually planning to go see it tomorrow, so I kind of hate that like we weren't able to squeeze that in before this episode because now this episode is going to come out, at, you know, a good bit after it's been out. But yeah, I'm definitely excited about it. Yeah, definitely, man. I mean, I, I loved Hereditary. Oh yeah, and got into some of Ari Aster's short films and this one seems very batshit and batshit's always good <laughs> yeah the hereditary is definitely one of my favorites in the last years and i need to check out his short films um i didn't realize that he had some short films but i guess everybody pretty much does so i need to seek those out all right cool cool Derek. what about you um, so I'm still going through comics eternally. My stack of comics is just always there because I always buy more and then I don't read them in enough time. But, um, I mean, we've brought this up multiple times. We brought Colin Bunn up multiple times, but I mean, he is the horror master of comic books, so I can't help myself. But, uh, the newest issue, Bone Parish, uh, whether I think it was issue nine or 10, that miniseries is just amazing from start to finish, just solid horror. Talk about feelings in New Orleans. That's the whole setting of the, of the story i'm actually gonna have to go look that up then definitely but also too colin bunn has been doing stuff on like kickstarter with uh horror anthology comics and trying to get other writers noticed i guess but i can't sing his praises more than i already am in terms of like horror writing as well as comics i've been digging into other podcasts that have kind of reached out to us i've reached out to them over on twitter and i gotta say the podcast community on twitter is surprisingly really 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 cool 
cool. I don't like Twitter as it is, and they have done a great job of making me enjoy my time on there. But two podcasts in specific I wanted to shout out because one of them already did shout us out on their episode, and another said they're going to be shouting us out on an episode. So the first show I want to shout out is Light the Fright podcast, and it is a kind of could be like a companion podcast to ours, whereas we kind of focus more on the movies. They focus more on the fears and phobias. It is a podcast that is devoted to exploring a weird fear or phobia each new episode, and they tell stories about the fear and phobia. They go in-depth description about the fear and phobia. It's just fun to listen to. It's very lighthearted. It's great for anyone who is interested in that kind of topic. Well, they shouted us out specifically on their newest episode about fear of zombies, where they go into the real life fear of zombies and they they discuss a little bit of uh, the cultural and historical significance of zombies Um, and it was a pretty good episode but uh, they shouted us out there and I shared one of my own weird fears because they take listener fears Um, I don't want to spoil what fear it was so uh, our listeners could go check it out to hear what fear I shared it's one that I haven't shared on this podcast before Um, so yeah again check out Light the Fright podcast and they are at Light the Fright on Twitter another podcast that is going to be shouting us out probably at the time that this episode drops. It'll be a long out, but it's called Tendril the Banshee Chronicles, and it is actually an audio drama, and it's a science fiction comedy horror audio drama. Um, I love the artwork for it. It, like, shows planet Earth and, like, these tendrils coming up around it, and it's all, like, purple and everything. Um, I haven't dug into it enough, so I don't want to say anything. I really dug the first episode where they, they kind of laid the groundwork for it and did some world building, and I I never thought I would be like I'm not a big fan of audio books so I didn't know how I would feel about audio dramas and I gotta say I'm liking what I'm hearing so far so check out Tendril the Banshee Chronicles and they are at Tendril Podcast on Twitter. Beyond comics and podcasts I started digging a little bit into Bloodstained Ritual of the Night which is a new video game that dropped. It's like a Metroid Castlevania type game it's actually made by one of the big producers uh, from Castlevania and specifically Symphony of Night. This guy named uh, Koji Igarashi, which I probably butchered that pronunciation, but uh, this was actually put on Kickstarter several years ago, and it broke like Kickstarter records, raising like 5.5 million, because he... I love how long and complicated those names yeah. <laughs> those titles always are. Yeah, like Symphony and of the Night, Ritual of the Night, yeah. The and, Castlevania one specifically always cracked me up, because there's always something music-related in the title. Yes. But... Like, eventually, they just, they're going to start getting weird. And the one that always cracks me the most is, like, Rondo of Blood. Wow. Who the fuck knows what a Rondo is, right? Like, and you could just keep going, like, the Fugue of Fear. (laughs) Yeah, so here's all the Castlevania games that Koji worked on. Castlevania Symphony of Night, which he was assistant director, programmer, scenario writer. And then the rest of these Castlevania games, he was either the producer, scenario writer, or even director. They include Circle of the Moon, Harmony of Dissonance, Area of Sorrow, Lament of Innocence, Curse of Darkness, Dawn of Sorrow, Portrait of Rune, Order of Shadows, The Dracula X Chronicles, Order of Ecclesia, Castlevania Judgment, <laughs> Harmony of Despair, and then... All right. Yeah, <laughs> I can't hold yeah. it anymore. <laughs> and then at, at some point, he... Left. I didn't realize there were that many Castlevania games Dude, first there, of all but like secondly like all them. those titles just kept getting <laughs> yeah. goofier and goofier there are a fucking lot of them and then since then he split from Konami I don't know if it was like the same sort of thing that 
happened with the whole Metal Gear Solid stuff and Kojima, but he left Konami as well to do this Bloodstained Ritual of the Night game, which is kind of like the spiritual successor to um, uh, Symphony of the Night. And uh, I played about three or four hours of it, and I'm digging it so far. The creature designs are all demonic and awesome looking. And uh, yeah, so that's really been all the horror I've been consuming. How about you, Mansfield? Um, So I've actually got a good chunk of stuff to talk about this week. So another podcast that I've been listening to that I think I might have mentioned before, uh, the Blank Check podcast, they basically take a director and go through their entire filmography, but it's specifically people who maybe had like a big early hit and then kind of got a blank check from the studios to do whatever they wanted to varying degrees, right? So the first person they started with was Shyamalan, not necessarily his first movie but like his big breakout movie with Sixth Sense which then let him do whatever he wanted and we've seen where that goes right so they've done several different directors past this point um, but right now they're doing Michael Mann and Michael Mann's only really done two horror movies specifically but early in his career he did this movie called The Keep which I have never seen with Scott Glenn yeah yeah, Scott, Scott Glenn, um, Gabriel Byrne, Ian McKellen. But it's a movie that I have never seen of his because it's just basically not available. Like, I think the best you can do right now is you can pay $8 to buy an SD copy of it in iTunes. Like, I think that's as good as you're going to get. Like, there's no DVD. There's no Blu-ray. I don't think we're ever going to get a Blu-ray because the, like, original elements are just not there to restore. But it's a movie that's set during World War II where the Nazis go to this strange village like in the middle of Romania and there is this giant fortress temple thing there and it's you know one of those things that Hitler was looking for because he was reaching out for all this different occult related stuff but they get there and find that it's like this temple where there is the ultimate evil being kept out Um, so the temple is there to kind of keep it at bay and the Nazis accidentally let the evil out and then that activates Scott Glenn who is like on the other side the world and he's like some like ultimate good kind of character who goes to like stop everything. This is the story of Doom but <laughs> in World War 2 instead of Mars. Basically Mon Mars. yeah. yeah but this this movie is it's a super mess. It's a giant mess. It's maybe a little bit too long which it was already like a three hour movie they had cut down to an hour and a half. It was interesting in concept that you can definitely see some of the early Michael Mann stylistic stuff in that movie but it's such a like weird out of nowhere kind of left turn considering the rest of his filmography and then I also rewatched Manhunter as well. Awesome, awesome movie. For that, just to kind of keep up with their podcast as it's been going along and Manhunter, I fucking love. The director's cut is beautiful. Yeah. That is the first adaptation of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, which is part of the Hannibal Lecter Sounds of the Lambs series. But this one is like full Miami Vice, Michael Mann, synth soundtrack. William Peterson from CSI is Will Graham in it. And Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter. And it's a very different take on Hannibal Lecter than Anthony Hopkins, which I am maybe one of those people that comes down on the Brian Cox performance being more grounded and interesting. I won't say it's necessarily my favorite of the performances, but Hopkins just gets so big in all the movies he's in as Hannibal Lecter. And Brian Cox is definitely the epitome of like the banality of evil in that movie. Um, But it's a very different take on the story, but I I love that one ultimately. Anthony Hopkins was more like the Joker version of Hannibal Lecter in a lot of ways. (laughs) Uh, Tom Noonan 
plays the Tooth Fairy killer in it, and he is super fucking creepy. Um, and there's actually something from that movie that I'm going to loop back around to when we actually get into Phantasm. Beyond that, I also watched Bad Dreams on Shudder, which is definitely one of the, like, Nightmare on Elm Street ripoffs. This is post-Nightmare on Elm Street. It actually stars Jennifer Rubin from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, and it's got Bruce Abbott in it from the reanimated Everything. movies. <laughs> and then Richard Lynch, who was, like, the bad guy in uh, Invasion USA and God Told Me To and a bunch of other things that we've talked about before. So it was, it's just kind of the, Jennifer Rubin was in a weird cult and the cult basically all committed group suicide and she was a survivor. She wakes up from coma like a decade later and is in a mental institution with all these other people and one by one those other people start getting picked off and is it a ghost that's killing them of like the original cult leader who's come back? Is it somebody else? Da da da. But it was fine. Like it was interesting enough to watch. It wasn't mind-blowing. But um, there are definitely a lot of those movies that came out in the wake of Nightmare on Elm Street. But this one specifically feels like a Nightmare on Elm Street 3 ripoff directly. Oh, definitely. Um, just with the whole idea of the mental institution and all these other, like, you know, crazy people. Great movie. Other than that, uh, Heather and I watched The Perfection on Netflix. So that movie's interesting. Uh, I'm not going to, like, really get into the plot of that movie or explain it because like it just swerves so hard it's hard to kind of go into it knowing what you're expecting which apparently that was a lot of the like problems that people had with it on Netflix but that's definitely agree it was fun Very interesting, I liked though. it a lot Heather and I both liked it I don't think it's like super amazing best movie I've ever seen kind of good but it was interesting tonally it reminded me a lot of a filmmaker who loves Brian De Palma way too much <laughs> who decides to then make a Korean thriller actually now that you mentioned it yes that that was that's accurate like that's exactly what it felt like tonally because it's yes. Allison Williams she is like a cello prodigy going back to reconnect with her music teachers and like the other student played by Logan Browning who like kind of replaced her and there's kind of this revenge aspect to it but boy does that movie swerve really hard a couple of times one of them becomes a black swan <laughs> kind of yeah right great example of like queer horror and Heather and I have talked about this kind of in depth since a good bit and we've listened to a couple of the podcasts talking about it but I think the main thing I appreciated about it is that it is essentially a rape revenge movie but one in which the rape aspect is not to empower the characters it is not to like make them stronger I spit on your grave I become an apex predator it is essentially like a bad thing that happened and they move on from it and go from there but it is not like a mechanism that makes them better ultimately which is where a lot of rape revenge stuff gets sticky so i kind of appreciated the way that it handled that part of it because it it goes real extreme with all of it but i think it's handled in a fairly like solid way all said and done and then lastly as far as movies go uh shutter added a lot of stuff at the last minute in june for pride month specifically and this movie i had heard about through i think the shockwaves podcast specifically but they might have also mentioned it on pure cinema knife and heart oh, yeah, or knife dude. plus heart 
that movie was really solid and it's one that has sat with me a lot more once i got to the end of it it is definitely wearing its giallo 1970s italian heart on its sleeve a lot but i think it goes a lot deeper than that and it's a lot more interesting than that it is essentially a killer in a mask with you know black gloves just all the giallo kind of things who is taking out all of these different people involved with like a gay porn studio so you have this director played by vanessa paradise and it's like her and her crew and her actors kind of all being stalked and taken out one by one and she's kind of unraveling the mystery of who this is and so it kind of takes place in that world of gay pornography but by the end it's like a very interesting cathartic exploration of that whole culture and i appreciate the way that it depicts gay characters and it never like casts any kind of disparaging light on them yeah or anything that's going on like it, it feels different because it's the same stuff that you're used to seeing in a lot of like old italian 70s giallo movies but not in like a this is bad other gross kind of way does it avoid like exploitation or uh, no it is still very exploitation yeah but positive it's very exploitation in a way that is not taking advantage of the gay characters in the movie it's necessary exploitation kind of like necessary gore there's a line between do you need this much gore to actually tell your story versus needing a legitimate amount of non-gore which can take away from elements of your story the exploitation and knife plus heart actually was more or less necessary to actually get the flow of the story right right okay cool so i definitely appreciate it super stylistic drenched dripping in style over the top ridiculous m83 does the soundtrack which that was kind of the first thing that like pulled me in i was like all right cool this is let's see where that goes um so it was one that like to me like it starts at strip nude for your killer and then it ends at like Bergman. It's it's a very weird kind of metamorphosis that the movie goes through by the end, but I really liked it and it was very affecting like by the end of the movie, all said and done and I really enjoyed it. The last thing I do want to mention, speaking of comic books Hellboy is done. I've talked about that in the show before Hellboy is finished. I mean there's still going to be like little things here and there. So I wanted to find like the next big giant thing to read and so I am finally dipping my toes into Swamp Thing, which I have heard my entire life. The Alan Moore run in Swamp Thing is like 100% essential reading for any horror movie fan. Definitely. Um, for Definitely. any comic book fan, like that is one of the like absolute essentials. So I'm starting at the beginning. I'm reading through all six volumes now. I remember reading some of the New 52 stuff that Scott Snyder wrote a couple of years back that Derek, you recommended to me. And I like yeah. that stuff. Yeah. I was just about to say that's a good follow-up to the Alan Moore Swamp thing, yeah. but I mean, no one's going to capture the magic that the Alan Moore Swamp thing like has in it. Yeah, and I think volume f- three or four was like a, it was only like 24 issues or so that specifically was just written by Brian K. Vaughn, and I like the artwork in that, like I like the look of it, so I'm kind of interested in reading that little run, but I was very surprised that from the beginning, like there are only like 300 issues of 
of Swamp Thing. Like, he's been in other stuff, obviously. Like, he's been in other crossovers, but there's only like 300 issues of Swamp Thing total. Yeah. So, either way, I started all the way at the beginning, first appearance, and have been reading through Volume 1, which is only about 25 issues or so. Like a lot of comic books, like, the beginning is not great. I've always known kind of what the origin is because I've seen the Wes Craven movie and the Wernowski movie. So, I mean, I've always, like, generally been aware of Swamp Thing. But what's weird is that, like, the first volume has him globetrotting a lot. And when I think of Swamp Thing, I just immediately think of, like, Louisiana-ass Swamp. Not like Swamp Thing in weird, like, feudal Europe nowhere country where there's still, like, carts and wagons bullshit. It's very gothic and strange and dated. It's clearly in the 70s, but it's the 70s by way of, like, 1880s Hammer. It's just kind of got a weird vibe to it all of a sudden done. So I'm trying to just slog through that first chunk to get to Volume 2, where things do start to kind of pick up. Because I think Volume 2 is after the Craven movie came out. The first volume volume hit. It was a big success. They made the movie, and then the comics kind of immediately jump-started, like, as the movie was coming out, volume two. I was gonna say, a lot of the stuff in the 80s that he wrote in the 80s is, like, the quintessential Swamp Thing, so... Yeah, and it's not to, like, 80 issues or stuff in. Yeah. So, it, I'm, I'm kind of kind of slog through the whole thing and just get to the Alan Moore stuff specifically, because volume two is the bulk of the series. That's, like, 170 issues. I'm definitely gonna kind of stick with it. I'm enjoying it so far. Like, the art solid. The prose is real purple. Everything in it is just like the dark swamps full of mire and decay and the inky blackness that pervades his very soul. This moss encrusted <laughs> monster of a man. Like it's just so over the top. <laughs> they're all, yeah. they're all soul caliber introductions. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just so over the top and just wet in every way. So it's it's kind of nuts. But I'm, I'm looking forward to that all of a sudden because I, I do think I will dig it once I really get deep into it. All right, well, um, let's kind of get started with a quick icebreaker. Um, so Phantasm specifically deals with a lot of different themes, but mostly like the theme of loss. And the majority of the movie is set kind of in and around a like funeral home, mortuary, mausoleum, and cemeteries, right? So Don Coscarelli, the director specifically, this this quote kind of is a good jumping off point for this quick discussion. So he says, I had a compunction to try to do something in the horror genre, and I started thinking about how our culture handles death. It's different than in other societies. We have this central figure of a mortician. He dresses in dark clothing. He lurks behind doors. They do procedures on the bodies we don't know about. The whole embalming thing, if you ever do research on it, is pretty freaky. It all culminates in this grand funerary service production. It's strange stuff. It seems like it would be a great area in which to make a film. So, what are some stories or just, like, general, like, emotional reasons why, like, funerals or funeral homes or embalming like why is that stuff scary to us specifically as americans too but like just in general like why is that such a strange thing that we have trouble connecting to and getting past so james start with you well honestly i think a big part of it is like you said our culture um as americans there's a overlying and underarching fear of actually death itself um we kind of don't really embrace death and the concept that it could happen or rather that it will happen we go okay eventually this will happen but we're gonna burn ourselves out as much as possible but never really thinking of the consequence of death itself 
there's a lot of aspects where it takes either being put in a situation or being exposed to something to where you're actually going to get that value or that, I hate to say appreciation for death, but it's more of an appreciation for life and it's the understanding of death. It's that death will happen. I know for me personally, it took one going into war and then also the death of my father to where I realized, well, holy shit, this, this happens. And we don't like to really, really delve into that, I guess, really as a, as a society, other cultures, it's expensive. It's in in many ways embraced, but in the United States, it's something that's just, we kind of brush it aside and uh, we can go into the fact that there's a coldness to the environment of death. Even if you're alive in it, morgues are cold, funeral homes are cold. Even if they're not literally cold, they're actually, there's a, a, an ambiance of just, you know, that murky soul crushingness within it. Yeah. So that that's how I think we really view it. And for Coscarelli to actually use that and uh, essentially weaponize it in film form yep. and come out with an effective product was actually pretty, pretty good. I mean, the film delves into loss in that aspect, especially with Mike and how it affects his view and his perception of everything going on around him, but also the views and perceptions of the other people involved. So that's a a big element of that. And then there's also the aspect of cemeteries. I know like in New Orleans, we have, uh, which New Orleans is a very different city because there's a lot of Europe just influence there and we have you know above ground cemeteries because of the water table but it's just they're almost made into art forms more than a end-all be-all cemetery of finality and without that finality it's just it's there yeah (laughs) for like me the better way of saying it yeah definitely got you there Derek, what about you? So I agree with him, actually, on a couple points, too. Uh, When it comes to Americans, we like... Not all of us, uh, obviously more middle, upper class Americans like things to remain clean, if that makes any sense. Like, yeah. oh, somebody dies, get the body out of sight as quickly as possible. We need to return to what normal life is like. Oh, Whereas yeah, in other cultures, it's like, no, we celebrate death. You know, they literally, I think some cultures have the corpse remains in the house or for so many hours or so many days or whatever. Yeah. It's just a thing. And I never under quite understood it growing up because again New Orleans is more the south in general not just New Orleans I think the south in general is more accepting of death because it just it feels like there's more death around us or we're just more okay with it I don't know what it is I just always always the people that I've talked to that are uncomfortable with dark topics around death are usually uh, from the northeast or the northwest or or just the west in general but I don't know like maybe it's because I grew up in, in the cemeteries in New Orleans where everything's above ground because because the sea level is so low. Like you you had mentioned earlier, we celebrate death. We have parades in the French Quarter, yeah. jazz, funerals, everything else. So it wasn't really until I got older and I, I started interacting with people outside of the Southeast. As far as my own personal stories go, I'm not going to share any that are like tragic because there there is a, there's a couple experiences like wakes and funerals that I went to that 
were tragic as well as creepy, but I don't really want to share that. I just want to kind of go for generally creepy, uh, maybe even slightly unexplained. So one night, this isn't even my own story. One night I was just on Reddit reading stuff. You know, I couldn't sleep. It was like one or two in the morning. I decided to check on uh, Today I Learned or one of those uh, one of those subreddits and somebody was doing an AMA and it was a mortician, uh, someone who had been a mortician for about 10, 15 years. And so I went to the AMA and I started kind of just reading through stuff. And one of the top voted uh, questions was, have you ever had any paranormal or like unexplained experiences? And the guy replied and he, he, he was very matter of the fact about it. He's like, look, I don't know what to believe in when it comes to that sort of stuff. I All I know is how to prepare a dead body. And I just approach things very scientifically. But he did share this one story where he's like, the one that sticks out my mind, because he's like, there's actually a couple experiences. You're, you're just around it as a mortician. But he said Jesus the one story Christ. that stuck out in his mind is he was cleaning up a body and preparing it for a wake and it was someone's grandfather and he noticed as he was like cleaning like picking up his supplies and the body was pretty much done and prepared and as he was cleaning things up he noticed that there was a uh, I guess some embalming fluid or something on the gentleman's ear so he like took a, a cotton swab and wiped it off and he turned around and was like continuing to put all his stuff up and all of a sudden he felt the sensation of a wet willy like oh someone licking their thumb and sticking in his ear and he like kind of uh, jumped. Yeah dude we're done. Yeah he kind of ju- <laughs> we are done. He kind of jumped and like held his ear and then when he touched his ear it was all dry and everything so he's just like what the f-? he's like okay you know I just must have thought about that whatever like because I wiped the ear just subconsciously my brain just went there so later on at the night as he was kind of overseeing the wake and he was just kind of talking with the family and everything else uh, one of the things that everyone kept saying is how much of a practical jokester their uh, grandfather was and he was in the middle of a conversation with like one of the grandkids he's like yeah so what's the practical joke that he pulled on you the most he said uh, he always gave us what willy and the guy the guy kind of just like nah goosebumps <laughs> on his arm like Jesus he's like I don't he's like again I don't know if death is the end but if it's not that dude had to get one more practical joke in before he went and then a personal like one personal story I wanted to share is even as a kid I used to have a fascination for graveyards I loved going to graveyards and just kind of walking around reading the tombstones I was a weird little kid <laughs> I liked graveyards more than wakes because in a wake you can open casket wakes especially are creepy to me but yeah no. I love walking through graveyards. I find them kind of peaceful and eerie, but it's just kind of an environment I like to be in. And as I was walking around, I remember my dad and I randomly stopped at one. I asked him if he wanted to do it, and he actually, for whatever reason, agreed to do it this one time. And we stopped in one of the historical graveyards in New Orleans, and we were just walking around, and we kind of went our own ways. I was old enough to where he was cool with me, like kind of going off on my own, and we were going to meet back at the entrance of the graveyard after so much time and yada yada. So I'm just kind of walking around, and I'm getting that weird feeling of being watched but I'm just like that's even as a kid I was just like you know I'm just psyching myself up because I'm in this graveyard (laughs) and I remember hearing someone uh, say hey get over here shout it hey get over here and I thought it was my dad so I was just like uh, I started calling out dad I was like where are you and he was on like kind of the other side of the graveyard and finally I caught up to him and I was like yeah what'd you want he's just like what are you talking about I was like you were just calling out to me right he's like no and I'm like okay there's probably another guest here and 
he's just like i've been kind of near the entrance and no one else has entered the cemetery we're like the only two anywhere near this area of it i was like all right well we're just gonna we're gonna keep that memory under lock and key for a while but (laughs) i think what kind of got me over my fear of death in general was honestly working in the picu i know i've touched on this in the past you know i've cleaned up patients who passed away i cleaned their bodies up before the morgue would come and pick them up things like that and there is and i'm not going to get into the science or the religious aspect or whatever because i honestly i don't really know what to believe but that feeling of somebody has left the building or like energy has left the building you feel it so much when like a patient passes away it's not that they disappeared it's more that they just went somewhere else and they're no longer there it's like if a friend of yours just walked out the door and drove away or something um so i don't know just my experiences with death in the medical field kind of made me not fear it as much in a weird way yeah i think i kind of had that real that type of feeling i want to say maybe around deploying the first time it was you don't really it doesn't really occur to you that you're in combat until something combat happens so my first deployment was in iraq uh the first rocket attack uh me and my buddy were around or involved in that was like that real oh shit moment you know like this is real and your death could occur so you have to either embrace it or try to manage it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I think my own personal fear isn't what actually happens when you die. It's more of honestly leaving people behind and not being able to experience with my friends and family, like just not being able to see what, what goes on after that. That's that's more of what I fear rather than like what actually happens to you when you die. Gotcha. Um, for me, I think specifically like funeral homes and mortuaries and that kind of thing just all of that to me what i don't like honestly is the artifice james kind of mentioned that earlier like i don't like the like fakeness of everything i don't like attempts to recreate life and the attempts to like bring life into a place where like we are specifically here for death like the entire idea of let's put flowers all over the place these things that are full of life and color that are essentially going to wither and fucking die within a week you know like just that and like the like really weird and always like cold and impersonal atmosphere of the funeral homes and the attempts to like make things comfortable and inviting like it just all puts me on edge because it's all so false yeah it's very, very weird, but just if you try to mask death with some weird form of life, it comes across as a caricature. I can remember going into my father's funeral specifically and then seeing all of these flowers and all of this stuff that was just light colored and, you know, a, a big, huge carpet that had been knitted in, in an image of my father on it. Like, I, I really fucking hated that. And it was less that that it saddened me by looking at these things, more that it just pissed me off because it was just like, yeah. why in the fuck is all of this here? I mean, honestly, this person would probably have rather you just go off and drink a half a gallon of Crown in his name and remember him that <laughs> yeah. way versus yeah. having this, I don't know, lie by omission thing where you're not admitting that really death has occurred. And even even verbiage such as homecomings and things like that, like, no, this is a death. It's a funeral. Iron it out. It is a funeral. Admit it and call it a day. Yeah. 
I don't like wakes. I don't like seeing bodies in caskets for that same reason, because like I would rather remember the person as I remembered them and not like my last vision of them being like made up like a mall mannequin. You know, I have told Heather f- this entire time, like jokingly, like when I die, like roll me up in some bed sheets and just burn me in a trash can. Like I, <laughs> I do not <laughs> want to, You like, want to take the Frank Reynolds approach. Just basically just just throw me in the trash. (laughs) Yeah, definitely like closed casket. Like, fuck that. No casket. Just burn me. Just like cremate me. Put me in a jar. Don't think about it. I want everybody to remember me how I was. Don't go to a damn funeral home. Like come into my house, hang out, drink, listen to music spend time together like i don't want to be anywhere near a funeral home you know like none of that so i've told her forever like this is what i want this is what's going in the will like i don't want to be anywhere near that because i hate like i just i do not like going to funerals for that reason you know it's not like i'm scared it's just like i hate the artifice of all of it yeah it's it's actually really disgusting and that's what's so creepy to me because it is inherently death painted up to be life and i don't like that aspect it's it's a slightly different vibe than like going to a hospital where you kind of feel that oppressive like energy of death and the possibility of death and like suffering and everything around you there's just something about like you know that whole atmosphere and one thing that is kind of strange too like y'all said you know we we have above ground cemeteries kind of all throughout the south because of like the water table and everything everything else we're used to that we're used to graveyards mausoleums specifically are like not something that we really have a lot of in the south so the whole idea especially of like oh this is just a giant library of dead people (laughs) and they're just (laughs) all stuck into the walls like that's even more just like "Mm -mm, nah don't don't like that the dewey decimal of death exactly (laughs) mausoleums look way too much like this weird marble museum as well yeah especially especially in phantasm we'll get back to that but yeah especially in phantasm where it's all just like fucking marble contact paper on plywood (laughs) yeah yeah Ugh. So anyway, I, that's that's a lot of it for me is I, I don't necessarily like, again, just the whole idea of death, like being ignored. Like, right. I think I would be fine if our culture was more accepting of death in the way that a lot of others are, where it just it is what it is. Let's not dress it up necessarily, like celebrate this person who for who they are. But don't try to cover up the death. Don't try to, like, bring life back to it, put paint on it to, like, make it bright and vibrant again and, like, try to do that thing. Thing. Just accept it for what it is and let's move on. I think the better version of that is honestly like Day of the Dead. Just oh, yeah, the, totally. the celebration totally. of death and the memories of the people who have died, I think is just a much better way of doing that, of bringing life into a tragic situation or life into death. Whereas it, instead of trying to avoid death, it's honoring death and it's honoring those who have, who've passed away. Yeah. And Heather and I experienced a lot of that when we went to Mexico for our honeymoon because we yeah. went right as Dia de los Muertos was starting. And it was so, like, that experience was amazing. And just being able to kind of experience and see people, like, handling death and accepting death in that way was very good for my soul to know that, like, it's just not as bad as we make it in the States. And then, you know, obviously Coco came out afterward and we both, like, cried our fucking faces off. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I totally wish the culture was more like that here in the States. And, you know, maybe it's up to, like, all of us. Like, people 
people our age and younger just to like make that change in culture. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think I think that's also part of the reason why I hate open casket wakes probably for yeah. the same exact reason. Just that whole like, yeah, it's totally, they just look like mannequins in a, a department store and it's... Oh, yeah, dude. I hate it. Yeah. It's, it's creepy and just doll-like. Yeah. It's a doll of the person you used to know. I've never really had a problem with open caskets, but at the same time, I completely see your point and... It's just knowing that you see somebody who I'd rather remember looking alive, even yeah. for as, as bad as they may have looked when they were alive the last time I saw them. I'd rather look at them alive versus looking at them as like this huge life-size yeah, mannequin of a person who I used to know or love. It's cliche, but I, I always hear that statement of why are we doing all this? The so-and-so who passed away, would they would be laughing at us right now. And so that's why I, a part of me does hope there's some kind of awareness, consciousness, soul, whatever you want to call it after you die. Because a part of me wants to like watch these ceremonies and be like, what is this goofy ass shit yeah, they're doing? Like, like, this is not I, at all yeah. what I want. If I die, just drink, toke up, and listen to a lot of good music. None of the modern shit at all. Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely a difference between, like, celebrating and remembering that person, and making that, like, a communal thing with your friends and family, and, like throwing a damn parade you know what i mean like like okay second lines in new orleans like that's a different thing because i find that to be more of like the positive celebration side of it but like james was saying the like overindulgence that sometimes happens for like no good reason a lot of times like some of that seems to me to be the like let's put a weird face on this and dress it up you know like i, I don't know there, there is definitely like a line that gets crossed yeah. at some point i think the major difference is that the second line and day of the dead and all that it's all coming from a place of happiness and harmony yeah. with life and death and it's honoring it like i had mentioned earlier but whereas yeah that's just it's just like let's hide it behind this curtain basically because uh, yeah. we don't really want to see it it's still built in sorrow but it's extravagant sorrow if you want to call it that yeah all right. Well, Derek has a quick message from our friends at Podcoin. If you want to run through that real quick. So yeah, Podcoin is an app that literally pays you to listen to it. Uh, they pay you with cryptocurrency. It's all totally free. You can cash in once you build up so much uh, Podcoins and you get so many Podcoins for so many minutes. You listen to of your favorite podcasts on there. We're on there. I still have yet to come across a podcast that I haven't been able to find on PodCoin. I've made it a point to transfer all my podcasts from Apple Podcasts over to PodCoin just so I could continue to build up my coins. Another great thing about this app is instead of cashing it in for like a gift card or, or whatever, you can also donate your PodCoins to charities. And there are multiple charities that they offer. Uh, one of them is like for climate change. Another is for adoption. Another is for fighting cancer, so on and so forth. Again, it's all totally free. And if you download uh, the app, and join you can use our invite code and our invite our invite code is literally dare d-a-r-e and it'll give you 300 pod coins to start off right off the bat again it's all totally free it's user friendly we're both having a blast on it the community is great i've actually even talked to a couple other shows that are on it so yeah again d-a-r-e and that is the Podcoin app all right, cool, cool. Well, let's talk about 1979's Phantasm, directed, produced, shot, edited, etc., by Don Coscarelli. 
is it a nightmare? Phantasm. Is it an illusion? Phantasm. Is it an evil? Phantasm. Is it a fantasy? Phantasm. Is it alive? There was nobody driving! Whatever it is. If this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. Phantasm. A little bit of background on the movie first for those who have or have not seen it either way. Definitely a low-budget movie. Um, this was one of those kind of fun indie horror movies from the period. Coscarelli scraped together about $300,000 to make the movie, mostly from friends and family. They filmed the movie over the course of like a whole year, just kind of as people were available. Um, and it was mostly shot on weekends, specifically because a lot of people would be like off from their week jobs, but also because Coscarelli could fucking rent the equipment on a Friday and not have to return it until a Monday, which is great planning. Great business sense. Apparently, too, the original cut of the movie was like somewhere around three hours. That was trimmed down after poor audience reception, and you know some of the footage was later like found and reused for the fourth movie in the series. But overall, I mean, this was a movie where this is a work from Coscarelli directly. Like this is you know his fears, his background. It's all based on like a dream that he had. So. This is definitely like a good example of something that is kind of purely from one creator's psyche all said and done. And it's a good example of like what you can really do as an up and coming filmmaker all said and done. As someone who, again, is kind of a newbie when it comes to horror cinema specifically, Phantasm is always one of those movies that, again, was in the background. I've always heard the name. I had no idea what it was about going into it. I definitely caught bits and pieces of it growing up like kind of like with the gate where it's just one of those movies you see as a kid like that's on late at night on like the sci-fi channel you catch like two minutes of it it's really weird you don't remember much about it after that till you sit down and watch it this movie is also a bit ridiculous in all the <laughs> yeah the, all the right ways it is a very crowded movie not and again I, I i mean that in an endearing way not in a negative way but there is so much going on there's so much like world building yeah but also kind of goofiness to the world building this this movie specifically like when you say crowded i know exactly like what you mean this movie is i think a perfect textbook example of when people say something has dream logic and it just kind of like flows and things happen and sometimes things seem very non sequitur and they're just kind of there or maybe characters suddenly come to revelations out of nowhere like this is a perfect example of that but it just kind of yeah. means that the movie is like going just at a clip and it just keeps moving it's still feels 
feels like well put together, start to finish, relatively easy to follow. It's kind of David Lynch light in some areas of it, yeah. especially towards the end. Otherwise, it's pretty easy to follow, unlike most David Lynch films. Honestly, while I was watching this movie, I just kept thinking of The Gate, maybe because we had only done it a couple or several weeks ago, but I just feel like this is more of an adult version of The Gate. I would be shocked if, uh, I forget the guy who made The Gate, but if he didn't take uh, inspiration from Phantasm because it just felt a like a- lot of people took inspiration from Phantasm yeah, ultimately, true, so yeah. True. As far as uh, those who are scared of horror movies, you could probably watch this one. The horror made me more laugh than uh, scare me. There were a couple jump scare scenes that were legitimately like kind of terrifying. Mostly more the concept rather than what actually is being shown on the screen because it is a little bit dated and it's a low budget. Despite those kind of jump scares, I think even people who aren't horror movie fans could appreciate watching this movie. Go in with an open mind because it it's going to go places you are not expecting and just let yourself be open to that and let it take you away. But otherwise, I give it a thumbs up as far as a good movie for uh, horror beginners. Oh yeah, I, I look at this as being using the sense of what Derek said, crowded. I look at it more like a video game. And it's just a really, really multi-level open world fucking <laughs> yeah. video game. You have different types of characters. You have the you have the tall man, you have the Jawas, <laughs> for lack of any other better way yeah. of saying it. Uh you have the lurkers, you have uh, and of course the spheres, which will come later. Uh, so I look at it as a video game and that's how I've always looked at it. And that's why I've thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I mean, I've seen it literally hundreds of times and it's, stays as good each time and it's just because it's a fun movie and yet there's not this overarching just you know oh god this is a creepy scary movie it's like nah dude this is a a fun movie to watch this is like this is castlevania (laughs) or (laughs) this is resident evil this is a video game and you have fun playing a video game you form your characters and you go in and you kick ass and that's the way this movie is to me a couple of the sequels have shared that others have molded off and then created more into the actual mythos of phantasm uh versus concentrating on that funness and yeah i mean it's just a really really awesome movie and then you got reggie who is the ice cream man who becomes the badass of the entire film franchise you have really (laughs) ordinary characters like jody who is just a slacker and a musician that's pretty much it yeah i saw i saw him described as a musician in some of the stuff that i saw but like other than the one scene where that he just like is sitting and playing a guitar we don't ever get the sense that he's actually a musician (laughs) he's a musician he's a musician the same way i'm a writer we're both unemployed (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I looked it up after this movie and I didn't realize Reggie becomes like the central figure of this entire franchise, which basically, yeah, based off this first film, I would not have been like picked him as the as the face for the franchise. And normally, as we're kind of talking through the plot and we're getting to the different characters, we talk about like who plays them and what movies they've been in. Let's just kind of nip that real quick. The three guys in this movie have basically mostly only ever been in the sequels to this movie. (laughs) Um, Reggie Bannister that plays Reggie has been in like a lot of kind of schlocky low budget stuff. But Michael Baldwin and Bill Thornberry, the other two guys, like they've basically only ever been in these sequels. But cool. So, James, you are the guest this week. 
you chose this movie. I kind of left it up to you to just be open, pick whatever you wanted. Why did you pick Phantasm specifically as one of the options you gave me? Uh, I picked Phantasm because just it, it's been one of my favorite horror movies ever since I've really gotten into horror. Thoroughly enjoyed it from the beginning to the end. It, it matched up with a lot of things that just I, I really, really enjoyed. And hopefully I won't sound chauvinistic, but it came across where it's just, you know, there's a final boy in Mike and <laughs> haven't seen anything like that other than really Tommy Jarvis on Friday the 13th but um the idea of it the ambiance the music the story being as kind of convoluted as it is right. you don't really know what's going on but you do know what's going on but then it'll flip it upside down and additionally just a lot of factors as far as how we deal with death as we talked before how we deal with the reality of certain situations and everything like that. I mean, you have Angus Grimm as this super huge uber antagonist and he speaks, he has personality, uh, his motions have personality. Very iconic. There's yeah. just everything that goes along with it and it's just a seemingly unstoppable force versus an actual person. I actually saw Phantasm 2, coincidentally, before I saw Phantasm and it's been very, very, just that whole movie series just very very good however at the same time seeing the first one I was kind of like holy shit they're similar films but at the same time I, I didn't necessarily understand the film from watching the second one first but then watching the first one I still <laughs> kind of didn't fully get it because it's so batshit later on talked to my cousin who was the same cousin who introduced me to Nightmare on Elm Street uh, he told me about Phantasm uh, I believe either played the soundtrack or he actually played it on his keyboard, the actual theme. And from there, we went and rented Phantasm. And that was the first time I saw the first Phantasm. And I've been in it ever since. Didn't terrify me at all. Just loved the film all the way through. For me, like, this is definitely one that, like, I saw at a young age, too. But kind of like James was saying, I saw four first. I caught four, like knowing nothing about any of this. It was on like Sci-Fi Channel or something. I caught four like right around the time that it came out. Like somewhere around 99, 2000 maybe. It came out in 98, so it was somewhere like right after that because the small local video, video store that we had, uh, Home Movies, the guy that worked there, Markle, who was just like that guy for me at my video store who would let me kind of sneak and rent stuff that my parents probably were like, eh, I don't know about. Um, he definitely, like, gave me the first Phantasm after I, like, asked him, like, what was this weird movie with these, like, flying silver balls with, like, spikes and shit and drills in them? And he was like, oh, man, that's Phantasm. You gotta check it out. Here's the first one. So... <laughs> He definitely, like, hooked me up with that. And I've always had this, like, good fascination with that movie because, I mean, it's very much about boys. It's about brothers. It's about that, like, sense of, like, adventure, badass, we're going to go, like, beat the bad guys, like, kind of mission thing. And I've always liked and, re like, responded to that aspect because I am the oldest of four boys. So the brother aspect of this movie is definitely something that I connect with. And even, like, Reggie being in the movie is basically, like, he's a surrogate brother in this family as well. Um, so I've always responded to all of that and I love the world building and the myth making of this movie because it's so weird and specific and even though the sequels like don't get to the same level of this first
first movie at all. Like, the first movie is definitely my favorite. It definitely has, like, the better sense of tone and atmosphere and everything else. And it's just as, if not more low budget than all the sequels, but there's just more, I think, character and, like, it's it's more enduring long run. You know, so I've, I've definitely always enjoyed this first movie a ton. Um, and it's definitely been influential within the horror community as a whole, but also, like, into music. I mean, there's tons of metal bands that have referenced things from Phantasm and even more, like, mainstream stuff like J.J. Abrams fucking loves Phantasm. And while he was making The Force Awakens, he was working with his company Bad Robot on restoring Phantasm. So, like, the new 4K restoration that we have is thanks to him because that's just what he was doing off to the side while making Star Wars. And Captain Phasma is even named after Phantasm because he was like, oh, Chrome Stormtrooper? Holy Done. shit. Yeah, Holy yeah that, shit. Just, just that just hit me. Wow. <laughs> yep. And I mean, it's funny you mentioned, like, metal uh, bands and all that because I'm looking at the, one of the original theatrical posters and I mean even the poster looks like a fucking metal album cover oh, from yeah. like the 80s. One other thing before we dive into the plot that I wanted to bring up is I watched this movie for the first time yesterday morning and then after I finished watching this movie I turned I turned around and went and watched Spider-Man Far From Home and this might be minor spoilers for Spider-Man but the whole idea of uh, what is real and what isn't is another alongside death that's another theme and fear that this movie phantasm touches on yeah. maybe not quite as much as death and loss but it does kind of bring it up especially towards the end of the movie or the climax of the movie and so yeah i'm in a weird headspace because i like both these movies but for completely different reasons and my boy mysterio is in the new <laughs> spider-man movie so also a giant smoky orb <laughs> yeah so i had to bring that up because i there was a weird connection between this movie and, and that movie and just the character of mysterio in my own brain at least so two more things i want to bring up before we start going through the plot one I love the editing in this movie. This movie is a perfect example of everything kind of coalesces into a great, perfect package by the end. Because like I mentioned earlier, he shot way more than he needed to. He was rewriting the script on a daily basis. So there's lots of like bits and pieces that all just kind of happen to come together in the right way. And this movie is such a good example of show, don't tell, where you yeah. are visually seeing a lot of what's happening. And you as an audience member have to put those things together in your head. There are one or two moments in this movie where a character definitely is just like, hey, this, this, and this is happening, and that's why this, and like, blah, blah, blah. And there's like this giant revelation just kind of out of nowhere. That happens here and there, but this movie is a great example of show, don't tell, and it's just because of the editing, and you really seeing a montage of things happening, and you putting all that together in your brain. So I love the editing in this, and like James mentioned earlier, the soundtrack in this movie is great.
so that's definitely worth checking out as well. Okay, well, let's kind of run through the plot, and we're not going to be as super detailed this time, because, like I mentioned, this movie is very dream logic heavy in terms of just, like, one thing flowing into another, and so with the editing and things being kind of intercut as far as, like, different scenes go, there's a lot that you have to kind of infer, so we're going to be kind of light on that this week, really straightforward as we go through and kind of drop in our impressions in as we go. So, the movie starts with a great title card of just Phantasm in this great red font. And um, we see this young guy named Tommy who is hooking up with this mysterious woman in a cemetery. Yay. Of all the great places to just make out right on top of someone's grave. But then she murders him. So she stabs him. Sex into a murder is the way we start this movie. Basic instinct style. Oh yeah. And we get a very interesting blip where the woman this like blonde woman wearing a lavender dress suddenly blips and is now this like creepy old guy with gray hair so keep that in mind for a little bit later we then cut to a funeral the next day and it's tommy's funeral right so we see tommy and we meet his friends jody played by bill thornberry and reggie played by reggie banister so we meet tommy's two friends and as they are kind of chit-chatting, we're cutting back outside to Jody's younger brother, Mike, played by a Michael Baldwin. Mike has been just super glued to Jody over the last several weeks, and he's telling Reggie all this. Mike follows Jody to the funeral home and is just kind of skulking around outside, watching everything through binoculars. And um, Jody kind of just remarks that, you know, Mike has been really super attached at the hip since both of their parents died recently. So Mike sticks around after the funeral and sees the Undertaker, the same old guy that we saw from the beginning that killed Tommy. He kind of single-handedly picks up this giant casket and heaves it back into the hearse instead of actually burying it. So Mike like sees this and freaks out and hops on his motorcycle and not motorcycle, but his little uh, kid motorbike and runs off. Just shy of like getting out of the cemetery, the tall man sees him and turns around and like psychically blows him off the bike which is kind of (laughs) a hilarious edit yeah so the tall man is played by angus scrim and and the reason i want to bring that up is because the version of the movie that i watched had a nice little introduction by angus himself talking about like oh i love the series it basically uh, helped my career i loved uh, working with don um yada yada so enjoy the first phantasm movie and i was like that's a great way to start this baby off a couple other little details are in these scenes like when they're around the funeral home in the graveyard there's one point where Jody is like exploring inside the mausoleum. That's where you start getting your first few scenes in the mausoleum and you see it's like all white marbled. The like white marble contact paper that's yeah. just slapped upon plywood. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're hearing like all these random weird noises like these gravelly like scratching and almost like inhuman alien noises and like characters are kind of looking uh, behind their shoulder and there's nothing there. And some of the scenes in the graveyard especially with Mike when he's kind of sneaking around you see like shadow people basically like people darting behind gravestones and then they're no longer there yeah or you're seeing it in the corner of their eye these are kind of freaky moments 
um, even to watch, but just that whole concept of there's something there, you know it's there, it's aware of you as well, but it's just out of the corner of your eye and every time you try to look at it, it's gone and it's always just in the corner of your eye. Yeah, it's that weird sense of like being in a cemetery and like always feel like you're being watched. It's it's definitely like that weird kind of feeling and sensation. Yeah. Yeah, so these scenes in particular really capitalize on that fear that you get when you're around a cemetery of just like, this is what ghosts would actually be like if they're around. This also included the great line that you let our podcast off with where Jody is in the mausoleum and it all accumulates to him like looking for this noise and all of a sudden in a false jump scare, he turns around the tall man's there and like puts his hand on his shoulder and tells him like the ceremony is about to begin. Sir. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a good jump scare because all of a sudden Angus Grimm just comes out of nowhere. And I love, too, that at Angus Grimm, so he's called the tall man. In reality, he's only 6'4". That's so pretty tall. tall. But they specifically put, like, tighter fitting suits on him to make him look thinner and taller. And they put, like, three-inch lifts in his shoes as well. But specifically that scene where, he, where like, Jody turns around and he, like, clamps his hand down on his shoulder. He's standing on an apple box because uh, Thornberry's already, like, 6'1 or something. So there wasn't, like, that much of a height difference between them. But they just further exaggerated by having him stand on an apple box while they're shooting that scene. But, yeah, just the image, too, of him, like, lifting the casket, heaving that motherfucker up and just shoving it in the back of the hearse is great. Because he's just, like, lanking around like Bigfoot <laughs> as far as how he's moving. And he always has that great, like, Angus Scrim, just, like, grimace on his face with his eyebrow raised at all times. I love yeah, it. Yeah, uh, it does a good job of making him feel almost, like, seven feet tall. Like, I feel like Slender Man is a bunch of bullshit compared to the Tall Man. The Tall Man is, like, proto-Slender Man. Oh, yeah. Well, S- Slender Man is totally just a ripoff of the yeah. Tall Man. Like, that's all it is. But the Tall Man is yeah, so, tall much man's better. so much better. <laughs> and just his mannerisms from his voice to the way he walks. Yeah, you're watching this guy. You're like, this guy isn't human. It's something in a human suit that doesn't know how to be human all the way. Yeah. It's more like a force of nature. Just completely a foreign entity. And yeah. And something that's just in our world and there versus part of our world. Yeah. Or part of us, rather. Yeah. This is an Edgar suit. <laughs> and that, so we're not going to get into the sequels that much at all. We might eventually do some of those. But the one thing I do like about this series as a whole is that they don't do a whole lot of like adding new shit into the mythos as it goes along as much as just going back to stuff that's already in this movie and further explaining it. Yeah. So that's one thing I do appreciate. The funeral home, the mortuary is called like Morningside Cemetery or whatever. And and, you know, it goes back and kind of explores who the tall man was, um, or at least who the tall man is now that was a real person that the tall man is now kind of inhabiting or imitating or whatever. So the series does a good job of, like, mythologizing what's already there instead of having to inject all kinds of new bullshit. And it really, like, makes the whole thing kind of circle back around and feel holistic by the end. So from there, Mike then visits a fortune teller to discuss kind of his anxieties about Jody leaving him. Um, like we mentioned, their parents recently died, and so now he's like afraid that Jody's also going to like leave him behind. He specifically brings it up because he overhears Jody saying that he's going to leave Mike with their aunt. So he's talking to the fortune teller kind of through her granddaughter. The fortune teller lady is like this old blind lady, um, and her granddaughter is like also a teenager like Mike. So he's kind of talking to her and 
they're mostly just kind of talking about his basic emotions and those things, but she kind of pulls the trick from Dune where she makes the box just kind of appear from nowhere. The the fear box. I can't remember what it was called in Dune specifically, but, you know, she tells Mike, you know, put your hand in the box. And as soon as he does, it like grabs hold of his hand and he's like, oh my God, this hurts. What's going on? She's like, don't fear. Fear is the mind killer, you know? And as soon as he like pushes his fear away, his hand like comes out and the box disappears again. So the whole thing was just to teach him like, don't let your fear consume you. Don't let your fear of like being left alone or your fear of loss or your feeling of whatever, like don't let that stuff consume you to where you can't react. And it's fun too because I mean this is like definitely before David Lynch's Dune movie was in the public consciousness. So Coscarelli definitely just pulled this shit from the Dune novel for sure. Yeah, the sleeper awakened in in Mike in this scene. (laughs) Yeah. So meanwhile at a bar called like the Dune Bar, <laughs> Jody is actually seduced by the same like Lady in Lavender character who killed Tommy at the beginning. And they also go back to the cemetery and start making out. And just as she's about to kill him, Mike, who again has just been following and spying on his brother the whole time, he gets attacked by one of these weird shadow creatures that you mentioned earlier, which is like a weird little dwarf creature creature in like a brown hooded robe it's basically like james said a jawa from star wars right yeah and it's just like growling and running after him it's not a gopher as mentioned in the movie and i I don't i don't know if this was like the scariest jump scare in this movie or the most hilariously ridiculous it was kind of scary but also hilarious at the same exact time uh just because the idea of like you're sneaking around the bushes in a cemetery and you just get fucking attacked by someone even no matter how their size like someone in a hood attacking you yeah yeah, it's pretty creepy. Um, earlier on, too, throughout these like scenes, the granddaughter of the fortune teller actually goes to like check out the mausoleum and investigate the mystery herself. And at one point, she opens up a door. There's a bright white light, and then you just hear a scream, and that's it. Yeah, so it's implied that she like goes to check it out, and she's also killed yeah. or something. There are a lot of people who wind up disappearing throughout the course of the movies themselves. Yeah, the uh, fortune teller's granddaughter going in. A part of it was, well, is she dead? Is she linked to this thing? Because they have this overall knowledge of what Mike is going to be facing. Yeah. So there, there's that aspect. So during the scene in the cemetery, Mike is attacked by one of the little hooded creatures, and he basically just tears out of the bushes screaming, which catches Jody's attention. And Jody is like pants down by ankles, like about <laughs> to get it on with the lady in Lavender, who is the tall man. Yeah, under, yeah under, underwear yeah. in mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Way to be a cock block, Mike. Yeah, I don't know. His, like, blow-dried quaff wasn't doing him much favors either, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. So anyway, he, like, gets up and, like, pulls his pants up and just completely, like, ignores the girl who, like, picked him up at the bar and brought him back to a cemetery. He just, like, ditches her for a hot second to run after his brother. Um, So he catches up with Mike, and Mike is trying to just, like, blast off all this shit at Jody and like explain all the weird things that's been happening and Jody's just like whatever like you're making this shit up you're a kid whatever 
So we then have another scene where Mike is at their house and he is working on Jody's car, which we kind of see this like here and there throughout the movie up to now where Mike seems to have like this good, like preternatural kind of mechanic skills. And so he's constantly like tweaking and working on the car that Jody has, which is like a badass Barracuda, which I love that like over the course of the series. And again, this is where like in my head, James, your like video game ideas fucking rad because over the course of the game just like in the course of the movies upgrade your fucking car upgrade your weapons upgrade like your gear and all that other stuff as you like go on that car gets like more and more tricked out over the course of the series to the point where like it literally has one of the fucking orbs in the engine like a fucking mr fusion from back to the future so it's just like orb powered by you know one point i think that's a movie like four maybe but either way yeah um Mike, you know, is working on this car. And this is another one of those, like, dream logic things because every time you see Mike working on the car, it's always just, like, with Ratchet in hand, just cranking something, right? What is he actually doing? But I think it's just one of those little kid dream logic, like, yeah, I'm helping Dad work on the car, hit with hammer. You know, like, you're not actually (laughs) doing anything, but, like, you are in your mind. So, anyway, Mike is under the car, has the car jacked up, and he's working working on something on the underside when all of a sudden he hears that same like skittering and all the little growling noises and the hooded creatures are like in the garage with him and at one point the jack gets knocked out of the way and the car comes down and kind of traps Mike and just as he thinks he's about to be attacked it's Jody that shows up and there's kind of a fun jump scare um, as he like hits him on the foot with a hammer so you know he gets him out from underneath the car and again tells him like oh yeah I just got attacked again and Jody just kind of blows it off so then we flash to Mike in town this time and he's like going to meet up with Reggie the ice cream man and there's a great moment just in slow motion with the soundtrack blasting where we see the tall man walking down the street and Mike is like watching him from around the corner and it's just Angus Scrim in slow motion just strutting and he walks right in front of the ice cream truck as Reggie is like unloading stuff so there's all this like cold vapor coming out and he just like stops at the truck and just breathes it in heavily and is just kind of in a weird orgasmic state as he's breathing in all these like cold vapors and it's just kind of this weird like what the fuck am I looking at kind of moment for Mike where he sees that and, and the tall man of course like turns and like looks right at him and makes eye contact with him. Mike then decides like okay Jody won't believe me I gotta get proof so he decides to go to Morningside Mortuary by himself to find some kind of evidence of like all the weird shit that's going on. As he's sneaking around he then kind of gets chased by both like this evil groundskeeper guy who's there and these fucking flying silver orbs that we've mentioned like imagine a perfect christmas tree ornament silver ball just zip zap flying around and you kind of see like it's weird like red kool-aid predator vision at one point as it's like stalking the halls of the mortuary and the cool thing is these balls are fucking awesome that's like the one like iconic imagery thing from this movie that even if you've never seen this movie you've seen these fucking like balls with blades and drill bits and needles and shit coming out of them flying around and yeah i would love to have a christmas ornament that might have to be like a craft project that my wife can do this year is make me one of those but these silver orbs they get more and more like cool and badass as the series goes on but one of them is chasing him while the groundskeeper guy is kind of chasing him and eventually 
essentially the groundskeeper guy like has him in a grip as the ball is flying right towards him, but he manages to slip out of the groundskeeper's grasp and the fucking silver orb like flings out some blades and just flies right into the groundskeeper guy's forehead and starts drilling out his fucking brain and just squirting blood and shit out the back of the orb. And so the guy's just like sitting there freaking out with his head flailing as it's drilling into his skull and just blasting his brains and shit out the backside of the orb. One of the coolest movie deaths I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's it's metal as fuck, and there's a couple of good ones over the course of the series. Who the fuck is that groundskeeper? Is he just like a human guy who was the groundskeeper for the mortuary? And, but he was... No idea. So, just from like a practical standpoint, this seems to me like one of those things that maybe that character had more in the movie, and they cut it. He was working with the tall man, and he had to have known what the fuck was going on around this mausoleum. I'd always gone through that scene thinking about, is the groundskeeper guy a human or is he one of the tall man's creations? Because, like you said, comes up, it hits him, he starts panicking, and then it just shoots out red blood everywhere, the uh, sphere does. But then when the dude lands, it's like all of this yellow shit starts flowing out. And later on, as we will see, the tall man has yellow blood. And going into that, I was just like, what is it? Totally. I think that he was just literally a minion of the tall man. Yeah, he was like one of the reanimated corpses, yeah. But again, I'm one of who's up for argument. He gets killed, it's red blood, but at the same time, he has a place in that in that organization that is Morningside Cemetery, Mortuary, whatever. Because you do not work around there, just randomly pick up a kid and not know what the hell's going on. And you're not going to bypass the big eight-foot-tall motherfucker in all black who is utterly weird. It's interesting you bring that up now because when thinking back on the scene I could see that because I just took it I just dismissed it as like he's voiding his bladder because he just died so it was literally piss coming out. Okay so for real on that note that is technically what happened. This is one of those weird bits that I, I read about. Like the scene that we're about to get to the tall man is injured and there's like this thick gross yellow pus kind of blood that comes out of him. Just just like vanilla pudding blood everywhere. So the scene with the groundskeeper with him getting killed, that is technically piss. It's him like literally pissing himself as he's dying. The movie originally got an X rating because of this scene. The violence was too gruesome. Apparently it was a lot gorier initially and him like peeing himself as he's dying was one of those things where the MPAA was like, uh, no X. All for piss. So as a way to get around that, they re shot a few scenes with like the blood the whole thing with the finger that we're about to get to is specifically something that they changed and then went back to the MPA and they're like well it's not actually pee it's yellow blood because he's part of this like whole alien thing or whatever so they kind of like changed that to get the R rating that they were going for instead of it getting tagged as an X so <laughs> technically like y'all are both right in that regard canonically he is he's an alien awesome yes. it feels good to be right canonically <laughs> Exactly, like James said, he, like he's already been like transformed. Um, but technically, yeah, that was just him pissing himself, and they had to change it for the rating. So Mike manages to again like outmaneuver the groundskeeper. The groundskeeper guy is killed by the orb. And then all of a sudden the tall man like appears, right? Dude, this this scene is great 
sweet too because the kid all he has now is like a small n- hand knife yeah and he just turns a corner as fucking angus walks around the other corner and they have this like stare off mike even whispers like under his breath oh shit yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then like there's this like four or five second pause where they're just staring at each other and then they both just take off like mike starts running and the tall man starts running after him and the tall man running after him is such creepy imagery just the way that angus portrays it god think about that you're being chased by slender man through a empty mausoleum at night like yeah yeah. there's like Derek said, the scene where the tall man just bolts after Mike, I mean, the first time I remember seeing that, and bear in mind, I didn't say it before, but I saw this movie as a teenager, so my perspective was much different than that of a child in that regard, or a young child. I was used to, you know, Jason, Michael Myers, you know, guys who just kind of walk, but they suddenly wind up somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the way the scene was gonna go is he was gonna just start speed walking at him. Right. And like somehow right. he'd still keep pace, kind of like in every other horror movie. No, he fucking sprints after this kid. Yeah, yeah he just bolts after him and it's like, holy fuck. That was really unsettling because it caught me off guard. And he's doing it in such like an emotionless kind of way. Like, again, he's got that like Angus Grimm like scowl on his face, but he's not like screaming or yelling or flailing. It's just like this dead like robotic Terminator sprint as he's going. That's just like so unnerving because there's no real passion behind it necessarily just this like weird drive it's very mechanical it's a very mechanical motion anyway yeah he starts chasing mike through the funeral home and kind of back through the basement area where mike snuck in and mike manages to like slam this big heavy door shut behind him and then he turns around and notices the tall man's fingers like the the back half of his hand is like caught in the door and just like still sitting there flailing and mike fucking cuts the fingers off with his little knife and all of a sudden like all this yellow blood starts squirting everywhere and you hear just this like monster noise so he picks one of these fucking fingers up puts it in his pocket to like bring back as some kind of proof which all the like goopy yellow blood like you don't know what the fuck is in that blood it could be like alien blood like acid blood for all you know and you're just shoving this like twitchy (laughs) finger in your pocket okay kid (laughs) he's 13 that jean jacket will protect it okay yeah So he gets back to the house. Nearly escapes more of those hooded Jawa people. <laughs> yeah, because they're all chasing him again in the cemetery. They stole his shoe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. one of them stole his shoe. Um, so he gets back home, and this is a scene that I do like, because Jody has kind of blown him off a little bit, just kind of in that way that like any older brother is going to blow off the younger brother when it's like, oh, yeah, this weird shit happened. But I love that he's like, look, here's a finger, and Jody's just like, all right, cool. Um, that's fucked up. I believe you, bro. <laughs> Game <laughs> Just on. like no more questioning past that point. Just like, all right, cool. I'm on the same page. <laughs> Going again back to the gate, it's the same way with older sister. Yeah, she doubts him at first, but like she realizes, hey, I'm probably wrong about this pretty quickly and is yeah. like, okay, yeah, I believe you now. Yep. There's just no fucking around about it. Mike has the finger in like a little box, like almost like a little stuff box kind of thing. And he goes upstairs to get it again. Again, and all of a sudden there's like a like weird like knocking kind of like it's rattling and he opens the box to look at the finger again but all of a sudden now it's like this weird like demon fly yeah. <laughs> and this is easily the goofiest part of the movie this is the most like SNL like fake cat somebody's throwing around kind of bullshit because it's just him with this like giant fake rubber fly with red eyes and teeth that's just in his hair and he's just grabbing it flailing around and attacking both of them but somehow 
somehow neither one of them get like any injury on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jody like traps it in the jacket, aka he grabs it with the jacket and then just starts like throwing his arms around like it's trying to get away. And it's just them like trying to shove it into the the trash the the food the not the garbage food, disposal. Yeah, the garbage disposal. Um so it's just them like around the sink just like ah, just shoving it in the garbage disposal. You don't really see anything. It's just them like with the jacket flailing around. Um so it's easily the most comical goofy part of the movie just out of nowhere there's like a weird rubber fly but the main thing is that during this moment Reggie shows up he like knocks on the back door and they kind of pause for a minute open the door and it's just Reggie and he comes in with his like ice cream man uniform on his little bow tie and his skullet hey guys what's up yeah he's just like hey guys what's going on (laughs) real matter of fact (laughs) yeah this cream's gonna be flowing fast and furious (laughs) at that point they're just like oh yeah some wild shit just happened and the fly comes back out of the garbage disposal and like attacks Reggie and they wrestle it back in there and shove it in and like really like blend it up this time and again like same thing this is also where Reggie's just like whoa what the fuck just happened oh all that fucked up stuff you've been talking about cool it's all real all right cool I'm in (laughs) so now all three of them are like in the mix weird shit's happening one other quick thing that I like when Mike is in his room and this is what I mentioned earlier that would like wrap back around to Manhunter in Mike's room he has one of those like giant whole entire like wall graphics of the moon um it's it's literally like the surface of the moon with like the moon landers but taking up an entire wall and that's one of those weird interior design things that i wish would come back because in manhunter um in tom noonan's apartment he like has the same thing it's like you know the surface of mars or some bullshit just this giant panel in the middle of his living room and at one point when all the cops are showing up he like jumps through that motherfucker <laughs> or he like punches through it directly just steps through shotgun in hand so yeah I, I love that weird little detail so this is kind of where the plot starts getting kind of scattershot and this is kind of where you can tell like there was probably more going on but they kind of edited around some things so after the three of them are kind of all on the same page jody just decides i'm gonna go to morningside and check things out on my own so he goes he is kind of immediately chased away by the hearse the hearse like seems to be driving itself and so it's chasing him around the cemetery and right as he like gets out the gates mike shows up in jody's muscle car to like rescue him so mike's behind the wheel driving this badass car and they're kind of being chased by the hearse and again the hearse seems to be driving on its own right Um, but eventually they like force it off the road and cause it to crash they stop they get out they go to investigate and they discover that the hearse was being driven by one of the dwarf creatures and it's like dripping the yellow blood they open the hood to like see what it is under the hood and it's fucking Tommy from the beginning of the movie that they're uh, Jody's friend that was killed and they're like okay what the fuck is going on like Tommy is one of these weird like little like dwarf creatures so Mike Jody and Reggie kind of all decide like alright we have to defeat the tall man and his like forces of evil but Jody at this point kind of like forces Mike to stay out of the action just like look you have to go away like I'm gonna stash you with one of my friends who owns this antique store so you're gonna go stay safe with them Reggie and I are gonna go like start kind of investigating shit and like planning from there while Mike 
is at this antique store. He's kind of digging around and looking through some of the stuff there, but he finds this box of old photographs and he's looking through them and he finds this one that is of the actual like funeral home mausoleum place Morningside with this like horse and cart kind of old hearse. And the guy driving it is the fucking tall man, but he's got like a top hat and you know, an old timey like jacket and suspenders and bullshit on. And the photo like comes to life and he like turns and looks at Mike and says like boy or something similar to that. So that's one of the nice things that again, like the series as a whole wraps back around to from a lore standpoint because you find out that this guy, Angus Scrim, like was Jebediah Morningside and he owned this funeral home and through like all kinds of weird like other time travel, like multiverse portal dimension bullshit, like he is taken over by the tall man entity. But we just know now like from this photo that he's been alive for a long time, right? So Mike convinces Sally, the one that owns the antique store, uh, Jody's friend, to like bring him back home. And on the way, they are driving through like the darkness and all that weird like werewolf mist fog that seems to be all over the place during this movie that just kind of adds that dreamlike atmosphere. They see in the middle of the road, Reggie's ice cream truck is like flipped over. And so they stop, Mike gets out to go investigate and he finds like some of the yellow bloody handprints all over so he knows like okay what the fuck he's been attacked or something's happened and as he gets back into the car all of a sudden they are all attacked by the dwarf creatures um and mike punches his way through a window and gets out of the car and the two girls in the car just essentially drive off into darkness like with all the dwarves in the car <laughs> screaming yeah dot 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 a couple things that i wanted to touch on here is uh, the thing that made me laugh laugh so hard was when they cause that hearse to crash it does one of those things where it like hits a pole immediately explodes like d- that's not how car crashes work but whatever well so that's that one's actually just in a second as well that's to say like that's kind of the weird yeah, dream, like see, nature getting, of this movie is that there are some mixed. like bits and pieces of things that seem to happen multiple yeah. times just slightly differently and you know this that's the stuff that I guess might be like some of the criticism of this movie not quite having like a complete script and it just being kind of a fly by the seat of their pants thing and it being a lot longer and having to be trimmed down like there are bits and pieces of this that seem to kind of repeat a little bit but you know overall like this the story is still there and that's what i'm saying like this second half of the movie is where things like could be tightened up a little bit more yeah as far as like a straightforward story because there's also parts where the, it just takes huge leaps out of nowhere yeah. and is suddenly just like resolved well when when they find tommy's body as as the dwarf that was driving the car they actually call over that was when they get Reggie over there and be like, Reggie, we found him. They got him. They got Tommy. And so Reggie shows up and they decide to put Tommy's dwarf body in Reggie's ice cream truck, like in the freezer. That's right. Yeah. yeah There's yeah. even a scene where he's driving and all of a sudden, like he starts hearing knocking from the back of his ice cream truck and he kind of looks over his shoulder. And then later on is when Mike and Sally and the other girl drive up and they see his truck flipped over. And so you can infer that the body got out and attacked him or something. But I do love Reggie's response of like, we're going to put it in there. And he's like, oh man, it's not going to like bleed all over my ice cream. Is yeah. It? <laughs> yeah. All <laughs> my cream. cream. Um, but uh, the, another thing I thought was also kind of just funny was like that scene where they stop at Reggie's flipped truck and Mike is the one that goes and investigate and like you have these two grown ass adult women who are supposed to be basically babysitting Mike and they just fucking let him go like investigate this car crash like okay. He's, he's got to conquer his fears. So 
from here, Mike, like, dot, 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 makes his way back home after the girls drive off into the darkness covered in dwarfs. And at this point, Jody's also at home. And Jody's like, all right, fuck this. You're not going anywhere. Locks him in his room. And then Jody and Reggie, like, head off to confront the tall man. And Mike escapes his room using the most Home Alone-ass... MacGyver-esque. <laughs> 13-year-old who knows way too much about shit kind of method where he literally takes a shotgun shell and just tapes it to the head of a hammer and then just fucking hits his doorknob and blasts that shit out. Yeah, it reminded me of the scene in uh, Inglorious Bastards when they like he makes that fucking makeshift gun gauntlet thing. Oh, yeah, like the gun gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. Just like punch somebody that's, that's, and shoot him in the head. That's what it reminded yeah. me of. Uh, so, yeah, he like literally punch explodes his door open and gets out. But right as he like leaves the front door of his house, boom, there's the tall man standing right there and it's just boy grabs him puts him in the hearse so now mike is in the back of the hearse tall man's driving the hearse is kind of whipping around and he's looking for any way to possibly escape well he still has some of the shotgun cartridges and he manages to like blow out the back windshield or, or does he have a shotgun at this point? I can't remember if he like he had the forty-five. Oh yeah, yeah, he had a, he had the, he had the pistol. Yeah, I couldn't remember if he had like that or if it was just the shells still. But he blows out the rear window and then blows out the wheel well from the inside and like blows out the back tire. And he manages to like jump out the back of the car and the car drives right into a telephone pole and just fucking explodes. That's when yes. it explodes. Okay, yeah, and like he just jumped out of a moving hearse from that ba- small ass back window. <laughs> about 45 <laughs> yeah. totally fine <laughs> yep and it was just like the softest barrel roll as well like the way it was cut he just kind of like and just <laughs> tumbles and rolls out and that was it yeah one cool thing about that scene with the tall man showing up at Mike's house was there was I guess the now the representation or the actual appearance that the tall man is really somebody who is not going to be easily fucked with he does a thing with the fist oh, yeah, and yeah, he yeah. opens up his fist and shows all of his fingers are back so it's kind of like well hey motherfucker you can't stop me yeah just you can't hurt me you can't harm me whatever exactly. you do like I'll just keep coming back which again we should like note from this scene he okay he just blew him up in a car uh, he's probably still gonna come back <laughs> So, he's near Morningside at this point, so Mike heads to Morningside to go ahead and find Jody and Reggie, and when he gets there and he's looking around for them, he discovers their parents' empty tombs, and once again, he's chased by the silver orbs and is rescued by Jody and Reggie. They basically just, like, walk around the corner and just, like, shotgun blast the orbs and kill them. So, they all end up going to the door, and this is, like, a door that Mike has been like seeing in his dreams and in his visions that again it's the same door that the fortune teller's granddaughter like went into it's like this one specific mystery room so they find that door and all three of them you know kind of give each other like those knowing glances of like like oh fuck it you ready you ready all right we're ready let's do it so they walk in this room is nothing like the rest of the mortuary this is like a stark white sterile space 
room, like straight out of 2001. And there's just all of these black oil drums lining all the walls. And then there's these two shiny metal posts coming like out of the ground on the far wall. And the posts are making like this really weird kind of wall, 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 wall vibration noise that's kind of getting in their heads a little bit. And they look in the metal drums and each one of the drums has one of the dwarf creatures in it. Mike is kind of looking at the metal posts and he kind of notices he puts his hand like through them, the space in between them, but it's like a portal to this other weird dimension. Like his hand just kind of goes through and disappears. Like you can't see his hand on the other side. And as he's kind of reaching further in, it like sucks him all the way in and he just tumbles directly through the portal and is just kind of floating in the air, like above this like strange alien barren red planet. The sky is just this blasted fire red and the planet's like this rocky craggy just barren desert scape. And he sees this weird procession of all the little dwarf creatures like chained together and these other kind of shadowy figures leading them. And just as he's kind of seeing all this, he gets yanked back through the portal. Jody had like reached in and like grabbed him by the belt at the last minute and that's why he was just kind of like hanging there above everything. But he gets pulled back into the real world by Jody and this is kind of one of those narrative leaps because all of a sudden Mike just seems to know exactly what's happening and so he just kind of <laughs> drops the like okay the tall man is taking the corpses from the cemetery and he's like shrinking them down and reanimating them and that's what the dwarf creatures are and he does it specifically because, because gravity. gravity and the heat <laughs> and on the heat. this alien planet they have to like survive so he like shrinks them down so the gravity doesn't get to them and he's selling them as like slaves like he gets all of this information just from like seeing like a weird fucked up thing through the portal and getting pulled back in he just suddenly like has this information so this is one of those like narrative leaps but it still works fine because you're visually like seeing all of this other stuff and you can kind of put you can put most of that together yourself so another thing and that I read about this like later on after watching the movie and it, I think it might have been explained in one of the sequels I don't know y'all correct me if I'm wrong but in one of the later sequels don't they further explain that like he when he reanimates the body itself and makes it a mindless slave dwarf thing and then he takes the brain and somehow turns that into one of the spheres like the chrome spheres that fly around and kill people essentially yeah there was an aspect of as far as how Mike knew everything yeah from this particular scene like Mansfield's talking about in Phantasm 3 I believe he is and all through actually Phantasm 4 there's the aspect that Mike actually is part of this um as far as like the orbs having brains in them another like strange bit that i remember from the sequels is at some point mike is like killed and you think he's dead but then he comes back and has an orb inside his head because he cut his head open and they see that he has a gold sphere which is i guess higher tier <laughs> <laughs> of course it is and it's, it's pretty great canonically it's weird because it actually fits in line with everything it's like okay well how does mike know all of this shit in the first movie well oh in this movie there's this 
later in the sequels, eventually, he can, like, go into, like, psychic mode, his eyes go chrome, and he can, like, control the orbs. So that, like, later eventually becomes Fucking some, like, what? wild bullshit. <laughs> Bruh. So, the last movie, I will say, like, is not great, because it's the only one not directed by Don Coscarelli. It is super low budget. The effects are super sketch in it. But the last one is, like, the most apocalyptic, huge, end of the world, like, orbs flying, taking over cities kind of bullshit. But it's also just, like, grown Mike and Reggie, like, fucking, like, tapping shotguns, ratcheting them, and, like, just going into battle mode as well. Like, it's great. Yeah. Now, do they, like, do they lean more into the alien aspect of it in the sequels, or do they go, like, no, it's actually a portal to hell, and he's actually a demon who's trafficking the dead bodies for hell? No, it pretty much always stays on the, like, he's some kind of alien extra-dimensional thing, not demonic. It always kind of stays there, but it's not really explored that much more. It's a big addition of the aspect of maybe why the tall man is so obsessed with Mike. And they kind of allude to, or, or Reggie has the visions of the, in the fourth movie, of Mike actually becoming the tall man. So all of that shit just meshing together. And the latter movies are not super good in, in that regard, just overall. But yeah. at the same time, there are a lot of exploration into mythos that really really were necessary because it's like why does Mike know all of this why is Mike being pursued by the tall man or not being taken out by the tall man the same way in a lot of ways uh, it's because he could be a part of whatever the hell the tall man's a part of or from the dimension that the tall man is yeah from. and like I mentioned the, the thing that I like about the sequels is that they do just kind of go back to all the weird shit that's already in this first one and explain all of that stuff from like a lore and background standpoint and just deepen and connect all of it instead of just introducing more new bullshit. And like I said, with a lot of the stuff getting cut from this first movie, a lot of what got cut is just reused for the fourth movie. So they like incorporate that stuff and only end up, he only ended up having to shoot like half a movie basically and just kind of worked it around the stuff that they had already cut out of the first one. During this last scene, um, there's, like, suddenly a power outage, and they're all kind of, like, split up again. Reggie remembers back to this scene that we see earlier where he shows up at the house and him and Jody kind of, like, jam out for a minute. And this is one of those moments that, like, I do love that they left in because it's just one of those, like, slow moments of just them being bros and playing music together. Dude, this jam session, though, I know, like, I know I agree with you there, but this jam session, man, it reminded me so much of James Hurley from Twin Peaks peaks just like what the, <laughs> what the fuck is happening right now i'm just a sitting here at midnight and i've been sitting here till noon you see my lady left me lonely yes she did Baby left me blue. Mm. 
it's a little more dad rock than yeah. that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely but... in the same vein. So he remembers back to this moment where he had a tuning fork and he like put both of his fingers on the ends of the tuning fork to stop the vibration. And he sees that and kind of remembers it. So Reggie walks over and like puts his hands, like grips both of the metal poles. And as soon as he does that, the vibrations that they've been hearing, all the weird like wah, 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 all that like stops. But then there's like this other just like big thing that cranks up and it basically like activates the portal and all this stuff just like starts getting sucked into the portal like a giant vacuum black hole. So Reggie's like on the ground trying to pull his way back out of the room so the portal doesn't suck him in. Jody is just like off trying to find like something like trying to find like where the power turns back on or whatever and he finds the lady in lavender again and just as she's about to kill him the poles get activated and she turns from the lady in lavender back into the tall man again reggie manages to get out of the room and right as he like finds the woman in lavender's body laying there she like comes to life and stabs him and and this is all like really quick really non sequitur it's just kind of stuff happening but eventually jody and mike escape and they kind of slap together this really quick out of nowhere like oh yeah there's a giant mine nearby with all these abandoned mine shafts let's draw the tall man to one of those and like trap him dot 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 so then we just see them running around in the darkness a little bit Mike basically runs down this kind of cleared path with the tall man chasing him the tall man like falls into this open mine shaft and conveniently enough all these boulders like roll down from the top of the hill and roll right into the empty hole right on top of him so as we get deeper and deeper into the second half of the movie and the plot progresses it becomes more and more dilated the action becomes more quick 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 things happening 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 without a whole lot of explanation and a whole lot of like causation it's just even reggie's death just all this random shit just starts happening as like of course this is the way it's supposed to go yeah even though it doesn't make any sense which again it adds to the dreamlike atmosphere of this whole entire thing because you know as soon as like mike masters his fear and you know like steps out of the way and the tall man falls into the hole and everything rolls on top of him as soon as that happens boom mike wakes up in bed we've been sane elsewhere (laughs) basically that's what happened yeah he wakes up and just like oh it's all been a dream what the fuck and so all of that kind of nonsense logic plotting that happens in the last half where things just kind of happen out of nowhere and things characters make decisions out of nowhere and new information is just kind of pulled out of nowhere it makes sense if you consider how dreams work and you think about how you dream and how you get pulled into this world that your mind creates but the closer that you get to actually waking up the faster everything starts to happen and the more nonsense it becomes the more just like out of control and extreme your dreams become until all of a sudden like boom you wake up and that's that so this movie like really mirrors that well through the editing and I don't know how much I want to chalk that up to like Coscarelli making just decisions in that regard or like the editing just kind of happens to come together to create that effect but either way it's there in the final product and I think it works very effectively again if we consider that it has all this dream logic flow to it so Mike wakes up in bed he goes downstairs Reggie is still alive and they sit and like chit chat for a minute and Mike is kind of telling him like all these things that he just had a dream about and Reggie is like bro back up 
this has all been a nightmare you don't remember. Jody's been dead. Jody died in a car accident. You've been dealing with his death this whole time. You know, I get it. This nightmare is all of you processing his death. And then we get kind of this montage of like Mike at the cemetery looking down at Jody's headstone. I don't know if y'all noticed this. The cemetery looks completely different than Morningside's. Yeah, it's yeah. a totally different yeah. cemetery altogether. It's very open, bright. And, you know, Reggie tells him like, bro, I've been taking care of you all these months. You know, me and my family and like, everything's good, but like, you just had a nightmare, bro. Don't worry about it. Like, I can't replace him, but I'm going to try and be like an older brother to you. Yeah. So, Reggie tells I'm like, yo, let's let's take a road trip. Let's get out of town. Let's try to get all this out of your mind. So let's just leave. Mike's like, yeah, cool. Let's do that. So he goes back up to his room to pack his bags. And as soon as he fucking like opens his closet door, there's the fucking tall man behind him, you know, just like out of fucking nowhere, standing against the wall. Such a scary trope. Yeah. I love that horror trope, but I also hate it at the same time because it's so scary to me of like something being in the background of a mirror when it wasn't there to begin with. Yeah. And of course, you know, he's just standing there. Mike sees him all of a sudden. Boy. And just, boy. And as, you know, as soon as that happens, Mike gets like pulled through his fucking mirror. Like all these hands burst out of the fucking mirror, all these monster hands. With Jawa paws. <laughs> grab him and yank him through the mirror into darkness. And then boom, cut to credits. We've been Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great, like, kind of, you know, fuck you in the end. Was it a dream? Was it not a dream? Kind of thing all said and done so yeah boom that's it and then boy howdy the next one kind of pulls a uh, evil dead 2 and just basically retcons and retells the whole fucking thing over again <laughs> yeah because like I, I was reading through a lot of the synopses of the of the sequels and like each movie like takes place right after the end of the next movie yeah more yeah. or less i read that the beginning of the second movie is literally this scene and then reggie runs upstairs and like pulls him back out of the void and his yeah. mirror and that's how the movie begins and 2 is not like a direct retelling just like Evil Dead 2 is not an actual like remake or direct retelling of 1 it's just it's a lot of the same shit immediately right over again and a lot of the same stuff explained to you over again just bigger bigger budget more special effects more dicks because that was the only one that was actually made by a big studio I think it was United Artists like picked it up Universal or Universal yeah like gave them like shit ton of money here do whatever you want for the sequel so he got to like make the sequel a lot better bigger but then kind of was like eh, eh, I don't you know whatever and kind of went back to doing it a little more low key so three and four kind of feel like more direct sequels to the first one in some ways but they still do take place after two and it's still kind of a weird rights thing because you know like I think if you get on shutter right now one three four and five are all on shutter but not two you know from a right standpoint arrow put out a giant box set of all of them but like so far Scream Factory has only put out two because that was like the universal one that's the one they had the rights to so like the rights are kind of fucky with the franchise which I think might have caused some issues for Coscarelli trying to get other ones off the ground later as far as financing goes but either way like the story is essentially told um, there's you know more to it than just this but I still think that the first movie really stands on its own in a great holistic kind of way the story there is top to bottom finished and concise 
concise and you can just watch it for itself. Yeah, know? as someone who doesn't really have prior knowledge of the series before this and hasn't seen any of the sequels, I thought this was a great standalone horror movie. Yeah, definitely. It's The sequels are there. However, you can literally watch this movie and that's it. It's, it's a cold film. I've told people who've gotten into it later on, you know, you can watch this or you can watch everything all the way through uh your taste for the franchise may change as you go through because of all of the weird hippity hoppity shit that happens along the way but at the same time you can just watch this film and you will be completely satisfied yeah because I, I could i could see the fans of of this series being like diehard fans who know all the aspects of the lore and everything else yeah the main thing is just being a fan of the franchise is massively different than being just a fan of the film which yeah. is perfect for <laughs> the franchise because you have this one film which can stand alone and beat it and you can come up with your own fucking answers by the end of the movie or you can watch the rest of the movies and some of it's played out some of it's left up to you but again at the same time you are given those options with this franchise it's amazing to me because a couple things a how old was angus grim in this movie because he played the tall man all the way up until phantasm ravager which came out in 2016 and and he appeared kind of older in this movie. And this movie came out in 1979. It's kind of one of those cases like Max von Sydow in The Exorcist, where he was only like 40, but they had old age makeup on him to make him look 70. Gotcha. But then by the time that you get to him like now that he is like well into that age, he looks exactly the same. Angus Scrim basically looks exactly the same, just maybe a little more round faced and like tiny bit more heavy set just because he's gotten a little bit older older but otherwise looks exactly like he did then because they aged him up yeah i remember seeing something where when he died actually and he was like about 80 i was like oh yeah. shit like how old was he exactly <laughs> like how old was he on the first movie yeah and i also thought it was interesting that uh coscarelli made this in 79 did Beastmaster in between Beast and then Master. there was like a, a chunk of time in between like it was almost 10 years before phantasm 2 came out yeah and starts right after this one it was kind of one of those instances like a lot of horror movie creators get into where the first movie's a hit and they basically bug that person for years and years about please make another please make another and eventually some studios like here's a shit ton of money please make another okay cool and, you know, it was the same with Hooper doing another Texas Chainsaw like he didn't want to do another one didn't want to do another one and finally Canon was like three movies do whatever the fuck you want here's all the money just one has to be Texas Chainsaw and he was like fine whatever <laughs> so like 12 years later we have a Texas Texas Chainsaw 2 that's nothing like the first one and Phantasm 2 is way more like action horror than it is the first one which is way more like this dreamlike atmospheric kind of psychological horror kind of thing the second movie is just straight up Reggie fighting a fucking dude with a chainsaw and a gas mask like that kind of action ridiculousness the aliens of the Phantasm films <laughs> yeah but they're definitely fun I love that Coscarelli basically stuck around through the entirety of the series. Even though he didn't direct the last one, he still was heavily involved 
and produced it and I think co-wrote it. And I've liked a lot of Coscarelli's other stuff, you know, from this point. I have a weird soft spot for Beastmaster. <laughs> Speaking of, like, shit that fucked us up as kids, that weird bat thing in Beastmaster that, like, wrapped people up and, like, vomited on them and turned them into bones. Like, that thing fucked me up as a kid when I saw that on TV. But, yeah, I mean, I, I love Bubba Hotep. That movie's fucking hilarious. I love John Dies at the End. That story is, like, really off the wall and goofy, but the movie's fun just seeing how Coscarelli brings some of the more ridiculous things in that story to life, like the giant monster ghoul made out of frozen meat products. So, I've appreciated a lot of Coscarelli's output, even though he's not been very consistent or very, like, uh, what's the word for it? He's just not been very, like, regular in his work. He seems to only do a movie, like, every several years. The fact that he made a very, like, iconic movie at such a young age that inspired a lot of stuff going forward, like, done. Like, he's kind of already wrote his check, so I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, because I knew the name Don Coscarelli going into this movie, and then when I check his, like, filmography, it's pretty much most, like, half of it is, like, Phantasm, Phantasm. and then the other half of it is just random off-the-wall stuff. Yeah. I was like, man, I, I thought this was a really, really famous director who done all, who did a bunch of horror stuff and it was like nope mostly Phantasm and I'm like okay I mean now <laughs> I understand why having sat down and finally watched Phantasm yeah yeah he's just had he had a lot of influence on everything with a little bit of stuff that he gave out. I mean, Bubba Hotep was awesome. Yeah. It came out of left field for me. Bruce Campbell as Elvis <laughs> and Ossie Davis and it's a mummy and you're just like, well, holy shit. Um, okay. But it's it, he's very, very good in that regard and uh, just like you said, it was, you come out with Phantasm and you come out with it very young and for how influential it has been in the actual genre and how much it's been a part of everything that that's actually just a good enough accomplishment in and of itself yeah yeah the main thing i appreciate about him is that like he takes some fucking big swings like he takes some huge wild risks with his movies and goes into some just crazy territory but you know even if it's not 100 percent successful i appreciate the fact that he's taken some big risks as a filmmaker and trying to do at least something that's different so i mean again bubba hotep if you told anybody like yo this is a movie about Elvis who didn't actually die in a retirement home with JFK who got mind swapped with Ozzie Davis and is now in the body of a black guy and they are both at a retirement home hunting a fucking cowboy mummy like go fuck yourself what is this <laughs> it's gold yeah starring Bruce Campbell and Ozzie Davis yeah it's great in here that's it I mean, we're investigating a scuttling in the hall, trying to figure out who attacked you last night. You bring me in here to look at stick pictures on the shithouse wall, man? Look close. It's Egyptian. Right, oh, Reno. Hey, you're not as stupid as some folks made you out. Thank you. Now, I copied this down yesterday. I came in here to take a shift because they hadn't cleaned up my bathroom. Saw that on the wall, took it back to my room, Looked it up in my book, so I wrote it all down. Now this top line translates roughly into Pharaoh gobbles donkey goobers. And the bottom line, Cleopatra does the nasty. Say what? Well, pretty much that's the best I can translate it. 
So, yeah, I have, like, a lot of appreciation for him as a filmmaker just because he takes, like, some wild risks. Um, they don't always pay off, but, like, it's worth the tries rather than, like, not having it at all. He seems like he also likes to throw a bone to, like, people he's friends with. Like, Reggie, that character was written for his friend Reggie, who plays him in, yeah. the, mo- in the whole series and the whole franchise. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat. Another thing is I now have a new meaning to the word boy yeah. because for a while it had been boy in terms of like Kratos from the newest God of War movie or not movie video game and now I have a new meaning from the tall man boy yeah it, that's one of those things that I've, I've said for years and some people like immediately are like aha I know what you're talking about but then most people are just like what <laughs> it's just me yelling boy <laughs> he probably had the least amount of lines in this movie and every single one of his lines is memorable <laughs> and yeah dude not a lot of lines but he gets his point across yep so I think that does it for Phantasm. Great episode. Had a great time discussing it with you guys. Again, this is like one of my childhood favorites. So it was great to discuss it with you bros. So that's it for this week. Um, again, we are Watch If You Dare. Check us out on social media at Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, you can download us at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, etc. Podcoin. Yep, Podcoin as well. Special shout out to my little brother, Jim. Jesse for doing the music at the beginning of the end. Again, check out his new EP from his band, Opossums. They are kind of touring around certain cities in the southeast right now, so definitely keep an eye on them and go check them out. They're playing in your city. Isn't he getting a vinyl release too? Aren't yep. Yeah, that's that awesome. is happening. They're going to have a, a vinyl available as well, um, so definitely give them a uh, shout. And uh, beyond that, James, do you have anything in particular coming up that you want to plug while you're on? Not really, just hanging out and enjoying the Austin life. Uh, and there's a lot of horror conventions that are around in the Central Texas area. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to those. Hell yeah. I want to make it like a specific point to try to get to Texas Frightmare next year. Oh, uh, dude, definitely. I- I'm doing that myself. If I can do that, I will definitely hit you up and we need to like try to get that together. So definitely that has been something I've been interested in doing for a while and just got to find the time and the money to do it. So, all right, cool, cool. Well, that's it for this week. And we want to go out on anything in particular. You record a good podcast, boy, but the show is finished. <laughs> now you die. <laughs> Sally! Sally! <laughs> All right, catch y'all later.